for epilepsy, there is hope. Hey podcast listeners, Tori Robinson here for Epilepsy Sparks Insights, a podcast about epilepsy, epilepsy research, common comorbidities and all of the fascinating science behind it. Whether you have epilepsy, are a family member, a neurologist, neuropsychiatrist, therapist, neurophysiologist, scientist or researcher, Epilepsy Sparks Insights is designed to help you learn more about epilepsy from the other side of the table. I'm a person with epilepsy and some missing brain tissue. I hope to help bridge the unnecessary gap between patients, the public and the aforementioned. Because epilepsy research and science are cool. Hi everybody, today I'm talking with Dr. Rhys Thomas, who is a consultant neurologist and scientist at the University of Newcastle in the UK. And we shall be talking about mitochondrial epilepsy, his research, evolution, and gosh, lots of other things to do with epilepsy. If you're new to the channel, please subscribe and press the bell icon for notifications of our weekly videos. Stay tuned. I would like to introduce you, Dr. Rhys Thomas, um, a gentleman I have known for quite a while now, um, although how many times have we met in person? Maybe I once? Know. I don't know. That's crazy. Um, but um, Rhys just does, oh, honestly, I'll get Rhys to elaborate in a second, but just does some incredible work for people, families, cultures, the whole shebang really, and around the world affected by the epilepsies. It goes into the research side, the care side, and yeah, part of too many bodies. And we were discussing which hats you were going to wear in this conversation. But I will let you take over, Reese. Tell people about yourself. Oh, that's lovely. Thanks for the introduction. So I'm a, uh, a card-carrying clinical neurologist. I look after adults with epilepsy up here in Newcastle. Uh, but my primary employer, which really means this, uh, the, the main part of my job, is I work for the university. And in doing so, it's investigating causes, consequences of epilepsy. Sometimes that's genetic causes, sometimes that's consequences such as risk and, and sudden unexpected death. But probably the most unusual part of my working week and uh, my job plan is that I'm also a consultant in the mitochondrial centre up here in Newcastle. So mitochondrial, can you explain that to people, please? Yeah, my apologies. So um, mitochondrial. So um, as you know, you know, there are um, multiple cells all throughout the body and all of your cells bar one type have this little powerhouse within it, the mitochondria, that are a crucial part of your metabolism. And so uh, high energy cells need lots of energy, and that might be muscle, or it might be brain. And so one of the consequences of having mitochondrial problems is that you can get mitochondrial epilepsy. Um, and that's what we look after up here in Newcastle, kids and adults. And also, obviously, you can run through families. So we see multiple generations of, of, um, of people up here. So how does mitochondrial epilepsy differ from other types, more commonly known, slightly understood types? It is a really lovely area to work within because there are, um, it really repays the time you spend in the clinic to see those patterns and see the patients within it. So um, not everybody is the same. If you're going to pick a pattern, so mitochondrial disease often runs through families, through the maternal line. And so, you know, you know, if mum's affected, then the children might well be too, but men can't pass that on. Um, mitochondrial epilepsy might come in different ways. Some might look like a, what they call a progressive myoclonus epilepsy, which um, where people have problems with balance, jumps and jerks and seizures. Some might have seizures that you'd see in other clinics too, but with these additional metabolic crises that we call stroke-like episodes that have some of the characteristics of migraine, some of the characteristics of, of a seizure, of focal status, and can leave a scar if it's not treated aggressively. And it's really that 
uh, that we try and work hard to avoid because you can't have too many scars and metabolic crises without it starting to pay a price on the brain. I'm just thinking, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here, mm. but obviously you know that I'm quite familiar with scars of the brain and having mm. or attempting to have those removed. If a person has mitochondrial epilepsy and they do end up, well, do they end up having to have some scar tissue removed? But then, I don't, I don't know, if it's, it's genetic, so then therefore would you end up potentially with a scar tissue in another part of the brain if it wasn't dealt with properly? Oh, Tori, it's pretty grisly. Yeah, so people do pick up scars all over. Certain parts of the brain are more okay. likely to uh, have the scarring than others. Um, but it's a part of a progressive disease because we don't have a modifying treatment. And so even if we had a treatment, even if there was a medical surgical way to cut out that scar, the brain slowly thins over time as well. And so a lot of these stories are, are cut short prematurely. Gosh, so is there, I mean, this is a bit of a tough question maybe but like is life expectancy considerably lower for people with mitochondrial epilepsy yeah it is it is and um but i i wouldn't say it's all doom and gloom so it, within the mitochondrial story there are lots of different um trajectories and um and i think the best quality of epilepsy care really can help you know, it does add years to life and good years to life as well you know people get diabetes there too and similarly really good diabetes care really helps but it's you see people for whom maybe the diagnosis came late or maybe they just didn't like the way that the you know the news fell with them and they've avoided services and you see people present you think oh gosh if we could have had our hands on you 10 years ago and treated you in a different way we could have you'd, you'd be in better nick than you are now um and so we don't really have a disease modifying treatment for most of the mitochondrial diseases but good quality epilepsy care, diabetes care is essential. So what research are you involved with when it comes to this type of epilepsy? As well as it sort of being a clinical consultant up here, we're housed within a, uh, a welcome centre for mitochondrial research. And probably the most, um, the, 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 the work that I'm closest to is uh, a clinical cohort. So everybody who comes up here would be invited to uh, be a part of our registry where we can invite people to treatment studies, we get natural history data, we have a standardised assessment every time we see people, ask for biological samples, and we can use that for, um, as I say, natural history studies, for prediction modelling, for looking at how the amount of mutation in different tissues affects what's happening elsewhere in the body. There are lots of weird and wonderful things with mitochondrial um, sort of... Um, uh, epilepsies and, and, and disease in itself and one is the fact that the variant in the, the mutation if you like is not seen in the same amount in every tissue and so you, we get spit samples and blood samples and urine samples and what i really want is a brain sample but you know people are unwilling to give that in clinic and so i'm mm. having to make an estimate as to how much of the proportion of the cells are affected in blood and then guess what's happening in brain it's like unequal distribution like Absolutely inequality of distribution right absolutely right and, um, and you can get people for example who'd have a you know a very no, very mild brain problem but it's all diabetes muscle for them or people for whom you're certain it's mitochondrial and you've got to get a muscle sample to be able to prove it because you can't find it in their blood it does sound so interesting I, i've said in like multiple you've probably heard me say it a million times as well but it's this research and pe meeting people like you that gives us the sort of the energy the oomph to go on, on on a bad day and just hearing a little about your work is brilliant could you just explain to us mitochondrial is not if you have like 
something going up with your mitochondrial cells, it doesn't automatically mean one is going to have epilepsy, right? So you've mentioned diabetes. It could like play its game in many different ways, correct? Absolutely right. So there are certain patterns that sort of hang together. So some people will have um, maybe a bit of weakness around the shoulders and the hips and in their 60s and 70s, their eyelids will be heavy or their eyes might not move so well. They'll only have a muscle problem. And yet wow. other people will have, as I said, a, 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 an epilepsy that might go along with a, a learning problem eventually over time. It's, it's, you know, it's very, very different. And the weird one is it can vary within the family. You can have somebody who's sort of diabetes dominant in an epilepsy family or the other way around. And I've not had anybody give me a proper explanation for that. Is that like that be epigenetics or we just don't know? And that's the fun that's of it. Amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. That, I mean, if yeah. I worked in an area where all the answers were um, laid out for me, I, 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 I'd be bored. No, but it, it makes it very difficult when you're giving information back to parents um, because one of the things that we are really excited about is, so if I, if I somebody like me, in the, you know, male in their 40s turned up to our clinic with mitochondrial disease, I'd clearly give me a, uh, the the focus of my attention, but I'd be really looking for the women in my family who have not yet had children because it's passed through the maternal line, and we're really keen to give um, as as accurate as we can a um, uh, sort of pregnancy uh, counselling because there are things that we can do now to help people that we used not to be able to do before. Um, so you may have heard about the, the mitochondrial donation program, which needs a change in the law to get it through. It's what people call three-parent babies, but that's just not fair at all. So it's where you take a, a, a donated mitochondria, put it into the egg, and then you could uh, have a child where there's a really good chance that there wouldn't be a mitochondrial uh, problem in the, in the child. And that's so exciting to be part of that team. No, but I think stuff like that tends to worry quite a lot of people. Like, oh, we've got to go natural. And I feel like saying, mm. well, look, my brain is natural and I'm not so keen on it, you know, what with the seizures. So um, could you just like put it into layman's terms for us? Like, why isn't that scary? Why is that cool rather than frightening? I think that for me, the reason why it feels like a really elegant solution is it is replacing a battery pack. There's no part of the mitochondria, even though it's genetic, there's no part of the mitochondria in the self that contributes to your personality. You know, this really is an energy provider. And if if nature has given you flat batteries and somebody has offers you a recharge, I, th I think you take the recharge, I think. People also don't need to worry about like their potential grandchildren, that it's gonna go, ooh, and you know, faff about with your child's genes and scary, you're gonna have a mutant, you know? Oh, wouldn't life be so interesting if it could do that? <laughs> but this is, this, this is really, I mean, it's, it's critical, but relatively inert. This isn't um, sort of a, a viral thing that's gonna replicate and take over a cell. Oh, it's, not gonna, it's not gonna spread in a different way. It's not even got concerns such as genetically modified crops or something. This is really just giving you a, a top of the range um, battery pack. Uh, and it, it could be absolutely, uh, I mean, you, you, you'll hear lots of researchers who say their dream is to be put out of a job. But as we're bringing this in, you know, there could be a big, there could be a generational change within the UK if we get this right to reduce the amount of people who live with what it can be quite a scary and nasty condition. Yeah, and especially if you've got several people in your family affected, it's like you would, I don't, sounds harsh, but I would just be thinking, well, who's going to go next? You know, oh, totally. it's, 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 like the, it's, like, it's like the families who have people with Huntington's in it or something like that. You know, right. you, you, you marry into a family, suddenly your, your life partner 
she gets this illness that you've never heard anything about. It's devastating, changes mobility and personality. And then you realize that your children have got a chance of it and many of them will have it and their illness might be the same or worse as your wife had and you end up in a caring role for two, if not three generations of your family. I mean, there are people out there out there and they are f so strong and, um, and inspirational, but it, they probably would also choose to have had the mitochondrial donation, I think. So how common is it, this type of epilepsy? Mitochondrial disease, to me, sort of um, teeters on the brink of a, it's, it's a really common rare disease. And I suspect that the more we look and more we push for it, you're going to find a lot of people who've got a degree of mitochondrial dysfunction. It might have a role in some Alzheimer's subtypes, schizophrenia subtypes. It might have a role in some common disease. But the rare mitochondrial diseases, um, I don't know. We've probably got a thousand people on our books in Newcastle. We cover the north of England, Midlands and Scotland primarily. There's a, another specialised service in Oxford and another in London. So we're probably talking 2,000 adults in our books. I'm not sure. Well, it's 2,000 more than there should be, especially mm. given what you said about this research. And do you know what? In, in um, The more and more I, I read papers, or, well, I attempt, and, and learn about the research that we've got out there, which is like just crazily diverse, it's like everyone has got to have something going on, really, statistically. Well, there's no such thing as normal, right? And the longer that we live also as humans, like life expectancy is supposedly still increasing in this country. Not quite sure, but, you know, then more and more things are going to show their ugly faces, right? Well, that's how statistics work. That's why you're so grateful if you meet somebody who's got both, you know, Crohn's disease and lupus and depression and something. It's because they've taken away one of the illnesses that should have come to you. You know, that's how statistics work. <laughs> you know. And, do you know, I've just bought a new book, actually. And um, I'll... I can't remember what it's called, but I'll put the link under this anyway. But it is about statistics and mathematics and how it's completely, utterly relevant to every single part of your mm. life, virtually. It's just seen generally as though it's a scary, like, ooh, thing, don't touch it, or you had a bad teacher or whatever. Like, I, had, um, I was awful at um, maths, but I, so I had, like, coaching on the side because of memory issues. And I actually did okay, but I still loved it because I just kept asking, which I think is really important in science, like, why, why, why? I don't understand. Why, why? And it brings out, like, in a child, right? You should never let that go, I don't think. I, I completely agree. So I, I remember sitting in an audience where there was a, an American prof who was talking about the work that helped him uh, win a Nobel Prize. And what I took away from that is he solved a problem that I'd never had considered was a problem. It, there's a kind of a cartoon in lots of um, textbooks where they show how um, sort of chemicals go across the synapse. And I'd never really thought beyond the cartoon that actually clearly this little circle doesn't empty. And these little, he was uh, really asking, how does that, the circle that holds the chemicals, how does that uh, open up and dump those chemicals into the synapse? And you think, what a great question. I didn't, I didn't know that that was a problem. And suddenly solving it gives you a Nobel Prize because it was hard and it's got uh, impact beyond the uh, the answer you've provided you're right asking the right why questions and remaining curious i was talking to a little friend of mine little as in three and i was trying to explain to him he, he loves vehicles and i love aircraft so i was trying to mm. get him into the aeroplanes and then i was trying to get him into space air, spacecraft and i said no oh, but it goes up like this and then it goes straight and he goes yeah but why i said well gravity it's only three but why but what, and I, 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 I don't know how to explain, sorry. 
And it's another great example. And I think that should totally be encouraged. Everybody, we need more people in the sphere, right, of research, of any type of brain research, but especially, of course, the, the rare epilepsies. And just bring out your inner child. It's not a bad thing. It's a brilliant thing. I'll give you a why question if you want, Tori. Go on. So a friend of mine is interested in kind of evolutionary biology. Ask me, so why, why does epilepsy exist? And, and why do humans get it, but other animals don't? You think, oh, other animals do. So, well, not as many as you think. So cats and dogs do because they're, you know, they're a human construct. They've been inbred rapidly for domestic, domestic um, circumstances and same with cattle and other livestock. But if you look at outbred animals, there aren't many people with epilepsy. And if you think about it, it'd be hard to be a fish or a dolphin or a bird who seizes because, you know, Life is short if, under, the, yeah. under the circumstances. Um, and we know that there are other forms of epilepsy that have occurred in the animal world. You'll be aware of Cronut, the sea lion. Um, there's Canute, who is a polar bear who had an autoimmune epilepsy. Um, and there are some animals that do, but not many. So is there something uniquely human about the brain, about how quickly our brain develops so rapidly, and that epilepsy is part of what makes us human? that part of what, you know, the, the big brain that we've got, it came with epilepsy. Um, and I don't know the answer to that, but I'm, I'm, I'm keen to try and find out more. That's a really interesting question, but also quite a, oh, <laughs> I don't know, because it, yeah. okay, what are the benefits of epilepsy? Unless one is, you know, having um, ecstatic seizures, even those that can be dangerous, I, and it's like some, do we have to, are we, are we officially inbred <laughs> more than we realize? I don't know. Like, oh, well, what could yeah. be the, the positive thing for it, you know, of the epilepsy? I don't know the answer to this, but if there was, um, if, if, if our brains grew very rapidly through, a, a, uh, some time of our sort of evolutionary process, or if some of the trade-off for getting a rapid brain was the excitability of it, the learning components of it, right. Right. um, then it could be something about what makes us rapid learners. You know, this is, you know, all great communicators that epilepsy just came along as a byproduct of, of that kind of network activity. And it could be just with us. See, I, I don't know the answer to this. It's, it's, it's just me probing in the dark. But um, uh -huh. people have talked about maybe schizophrenia and the networks of brains of people who get schizophrenia are a trade off for people who tolerate brain injury better. The networks are better for an insult. You know, in terms of the organisation of it. So if you wanted to be the, oh. let's pick the Neanderthal who coped with getting a club to the head better, the trade-off was <laughs> a tendency towards schizophrenia. Um, and I'm, nothing is linear like that and nothing is that straightforward. But um, yeah, I just, you know, the, the, we, we don't have, you know, n naturally occurring gorillas with JME or, you know, gibbons with need lobectomies. You know, it's just not, you know, it's just not there. And maybe there haven't been as many generations of us as there have in other animals. What with the, well, we live a bit longer, don't we? And, mm. and not, yeah, God, so many questions. See, this is an awful thing, but it's an amazing thing to have these conversations and to give you ideas and, and people can relate to these things in so many different ways. I just, gosh, I just, yeah. All the links to that stuff to, to your, um, to your colleague or friend, I'd, I'd be really interested if we, if I could have a look at that, something from, from that gentleman, because mm. yeah, I love the idea of, well, not the idea. I just love evolution. I think it's so interesting and it makes you more, 
well, me anyway, I become a bit more accepting of certain mm, not so great things in life because it's just how, you know, things work over time, how science works and a lot of things aren't choice. And I hear a lot when people say, you can do anything, like, you know, the world is your oyster. Well, that's certainly not the case for many people, as we know. Um, oh, oh, totally. And... In the possible way, I mean, I... I... I'm a terrible cyclist. I'm an absolute terrible. I, I, you know, it's not my thing. Most people who are into epilepsy are, are, are sport and avid cyclists and very sporty. And um, but I'm aware when they're trying to push us towards cycling into work and things like that. That's a very ableist viewpoint. You know, there are a lot of people who come to my clinic who will never be proficient cyclists. It's not going to be for them. Um, but yeah, so there, there are there are tons of. The, I, I can barely use a knife and fork or tie my own shoelaces. But I mean, that's. A, <laughs> That's, that's a different um, situation, but yeah, that the, uh, the, knowing your limits. But you also t you mentioned my my colleague Paul, surrounding yourself with people who give you the better why questions are also good as well, because it, it's quite easy to live in a false bubble where you think you've got the grey areas sorted out, but there 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 are many more grey and murky areas than you know, and that's what the great thing about clinical medicine, because your patients will always challenge you. Yes, and they have every right to do so. And you don't have to be, I, I meet lots of um, patients, people with epilepsy and families who either think that they know it all, this is going to sound really mean, but don't like to be contradicted. And I understand that you understand how you feel. Um, but there needs to be like a two way relationship between the person affected by the disease and the clinician it needs to be open communication and each party deserves the same respect as the other. And each party has to be open to that contradiction. Say, oh, cool. All right. I didn't know that. Why is that? Wow. That's so interesting. Um, kind of, I think in something like the epilepsy, put your ego to one side sometimes is quite important if you're not prepared to be wrong you're in the wrong business or or you're not listening I, i'll tell you i'll tell you one i'll tell you one that i really like so i had a, a young woman not that long ago who uh, we were considering starting surgeon valparate for really reluctantly it, it you know as you know issues with pregnancy and she said well could i get my eggs harvested now and go on surgeon valparate and you can come back for my eggs later and said, wow i've never had that question i don't know who to ask but it feels good. And then she said, well, where's the risk held? You know, how long would I have to be off the drug for you to harvest the eggs in the future? And nobody knows. There's still uh, a role for what they call moonshot science. So people do high risk, speculative, sort of crazy science. And we mentioned Cronut the sea lion before. You know, he's um, a sea lion who really got poisoned with algae off the coast of California. He developed epilepsy. They're injecting, you know, brain cells into him. And uh, he's not seized yet. Now, that could become a wonderful innovation in time. And that could hit the high street and be with us. That's moonshot science. But it, it shouldn't all be moonshots. It should, there should be a real blend. And particularly if you're using money that's being raised by uh, taxpayers or by people who are doing you. Your charity work. It's got to represent the patient group that you're, you're dealing with. Um, it's really challenging, though, particularly with epilepsy. Because there are so many different patient stories. You know, you 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 get room hundred hundred people in a room, and you can get hundred and one different priorities. Um, and you know, it it we we just don't have the critical number of researchers or um, or even the financial drive. As I, as I would have said to you before, for every pound spent on Parkinson's, nine p is spent on. Uh, for every pound per person with Parkinson's, nine p per person is spent on epilepsy. Uh, I just find that absolutely disgusting. I I, I and I 
I completely do think it's not like we should reduce the amount spent on research for people with Parkinson's. Not at all, not ever. Gosh, no. their lives are as valuable as those affected by epilepsy. But going back to that, they are, uh, the lives of those affected by epilepsy are as valuable as the lives of those affected by Parkinson's. This is my opportunity to stand on my soapbox and say, I want at least that much, if not more, because people yeah. with epilepsy are more likely to be younger, working age children. It, it, it does impact on... You know, there are more premature deaths in people with epilepsy. Parkinson's doesn't affect um, uh, longevity in that way. Um, right. And so I guess if you're going to draw a map of how many lives lost or how many miserable lives there are, I think epilepsy trumps parks. Sorry. I think we need I think we need their money. You know, or we can or they're taking it turns. We can get adequately funded for 10 years and swap back. But um, I'd love to see what we could do with that amount of money. We're into equality in the valuing of lives of people from all backgrounds. And it should be the same value of life, no matter what your disease is. Everybody matters. We've been so used to the situation for so long. I think we're not angry enough. I think people should be angry about the situation. It's, epilepsy has been a Cinderella medical specialty for a little while. And I think people have been able to dismiss the clinicians and people with epilepsy. And I think people should be much more furious about the inequality it should drive them. It's amazing that I'm here and I'm only here because guys like people like yourself have saved my life multiple times. Oh, um, if, I think if I was in, it's, it's so true though. It's so, so true. And, but people are even shocked that, oh gosh, here she is, you know, lardy dying on a, on a podcast. She must be absolutely fine. And just because you can't see this because I'm not shaking at the moment or I'm not falling because I'm not having a tonic or a tonic clonic, it doesn't mean that these, you know, that I'm not doped up on drugs and that I'm not this, this, this and this and that we've had to give up these things in our lives. And at least I'm able to, at least in a way, articulate this. Many people don't have that and we need to give these people a voice, right, Riz? The people out there who are as worthy as us, if not, you know, sometimes more so, no doubt, like lovely people out there. Why are we leaving them behind? I've never known whether it's a blessing or a curse that people with epilepsy don't always, there are times of their day and week where they're better than other times if you know what i mean you know people with yes, alzheimer's are, are poorly all their time their memory's poor and people with parkinson's have problems with their mobility but you know mm. people will see you and they'll see the best version of you and people therefore won't realize what it's like at other times you know the the, the very dark times and i i'm not sure if that's a in terms of advocacy in terms of putting our um making it clear to other people just how important the the area is for clinical um, service improvements and for research. I'm, I'm not sure if people really get that. Maybe it's something about just how dramatic the change is between being well and unwell that are, doesn't allow people to imagine themselves being there. But be, maybe you kind of imagine yourself slowly developing a memory or a movement problem. I, I, there is an empathy disconnect. And I love the word that you've used there, empathy rather than sympathy, because of course that's what everybody with a, a rare or condition or an epilepsy or whatever would love. We want a bit more empathy rather than sympathy. And you know, I met with a, a friend of mine, this was a, good, this was a long time ago when I was very, um, very mentally unwell. And, um, but I, I'd come out of hospital and I was an in-between period, I would go back. And she said to me, oh my God, do you know what, Tori? I just, I don't get it. I don't understand what's going on in your head, but, but I'm here for you. And you can talk to me at any time that you want and I will never judge you. I just, I don't get it, but 
that that's not I'm not here to have to understand everything that you're going through and I wouldn't and I forget a lot of things in my life but I will never forget that because that's all that we want isn't it just for people to empathize and not expect that you have to be you know a specialist neurologist epileptologist who specifically looks at this type of a seizure or this type of epilepsy no just be a kind person that's it. I got that wrong for such a long time, Tori. I, I, there was a long time where I, I heard a lot of problems. I thought I had to fix all of the problems that came to my desk, and I, I and it was a it was a. I remember the moment that the penny dropped. Where actually, you know, be, uh, dropping some of the the doctor facade and actually treating it like it was a friend or family member who comes through some of the problems and just listening is probably enough. And actually, some of, some of the solutions aren't needed. You know, pe people are smart. They know how to treat their headache and their sleep problems and they know how to do a lot though sometimes it's just acknowledging it and um and providing that support and being honest i think with them too my my uh my best neurologist that i ever had and this guy totally saved my life as well and he was very blunt with me um you know i'm quite a blunt and honest person and i love this and he just said tori your life expectancy is not great like, would you consider surgery? And I was like laughing. I was like, oh my God, dude, I love you. Oh, thanks for actually being upfront and honest and open yep. with me. Yes, he knew that he could be like that blunt, but he was able to, you know, he knew my personality and knew that I could take that, but he told me the truth. And I should have been told that many years before saying like, dude, you're at high risk of pseudep. It's amazing that you're still around now, to be honest, um, that you should not have been on, had refractory epilepsy for 20 years without being considered for surgery, da, 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 da. Exactly, it's ridiculous. But he was just like honest, open, fun, cool. And that is, and, and you remind me of him actually. Yeah, gosh, I'm gonna make myself vomit, sorry. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, and it's, but it's, you know, you're talking to real people and yeah. it's, you shouldn't have to have that barrier, that old fashioned wall between you. Yeah, look, I, I, some people wear a mask at work and I know it's a protective thing, but I, <clears throat> I, th I think the, the better communicators are able to be a version of themselves. It, it helps. But, and you're right about the CDEP um, thing. It made me think about a lot of people get very squeamish about the idea of bringing it up. And it, if, if you do it in a very formulaic or, or, or a um, mechanistic way, it can be. But at the right time, in the right place, you're only saying what people themselves have feared. I mean, if you've been around somebody who's had a, a full seizure and they've gone blue and your know, first thought is, you know, are they ever going to come back? You know, they will have thought about, you know, where this could go. And so you're not telling them anything they didn't know already. And actually, sometimes that can be almost be reassuring that you're suddenly acknowledging that their fears and that, that you know, that they were right in, you know, by the time you come to describe it in clinic in three weeks time, a lot of that peril has passed. But, you know, you've got to, when you were at that stage and thinking, have I lost them and when's the ambulance coming? It's, um, yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. aware that, that seizures can be risky. It's an absolute joy chatting with you as usual. And I'm going to I'm going to make you come back, right, for another one of these next year, because you're always doing so much amazing stuff and the research, um, no doubt, will have come on further. Um, if people want to check you out online, where should they go? The most boring and corporate version of me is available on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Underscore Reese there. Uh, where I don't talk about politics or religion, but I will occasionally dabble in sport. Um, and I am an employee of Newcastle University. My email's on my profile there. Thank you again, Reese. It's been a total pleasure.
If you'd like to connect, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook or Instagram. And I'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show. Please subscribe to Epilepsy Sparks Insights on your podcast app so that you will never miss the weekly episode. I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening.